Welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze again, another week. So today I'm in conversation with Professor Suzanne Chambers, a Griffith University health psychologist here on Queensland's Gold Coast. Professor Chambers has just released an excellent book, Facing the Tiger, a guide for men with prostate cancer and the people who love them. The book's received some prestigious endorsements. For example, Memorial Sloan Kettering's Professor Jimmy Holland says Suzanne Chambers has written the game plan for coping with prostate cancer. She brings years of experience from observing how men and their mates cope. It is a must for those coping with this type of cancer. So welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze, Professor Susan Chambers. Thank you, Grace. Um, We'll start here with a question, a very much a beginning question. As a psychologist, can you tell us why you chose to participate in this area of cancer? Certainly. Well, I've been working in the provision of support services for people with all sorts of cancers for more than two decades now. And uh, originally, I worked in the area predominantly of breast cancer. But after a few years of that work, I came to realise that there was very little support for men with prostate cancer, and they were really quite a forgotten group. So I took it upon myself to get to know all the support groups in the area, meet with the clinicians who were working to support these men, find out where the gaps were, and since that time I've been working as steadily as I can trying to reduce those gaps. Mm. That's actually very interesting because I was on a women's ministerial advisory committee down in Victoria here in Australia uh, back in the 90s. And, uh, we might have been there together, Grace. It's very possible. <laughs> it's very possible. And I remember asking the then Minister for Health, we're doing this amazing work, you know, we're going to put this amazing centre together for women. And I said, what about the men? And his comment to me, well, if we had something there for the men, I don't think they'd come. So we're not doing it. <laughs> and do you know, people used to say that, and it's just not true. And I know when I started working in prostate cancer, people would, other researchers would say to me, well, good luck, because you won't get men to work with you, to reply to your surveys. And I can tell you I have thousands of men in my studies. And indeed, writing this book came from men asking me to. So that's a myth that men don't want to participate in support services. It is true that they access health services less than do women. Mm -hmm. But provided the support is provided in the form that they want it, I found them very receptive. Mm, and that's the key word provided in the form that they wanted. Um, so you've recently authored Facing the Tiger. How did this particular book come about? Mm. Well, I've been running trials of intervention approaches for men with prostate cancer again for many years now and with thousands of men and also outside of my research work running workshops for men with prostate cancer and their partners again for you know 10 or 15 years. And so over those years you get to know um, a lot about what's appropriate, what's helpful and what blokes want basically to cut to the core of it. So for a long time I'd had publishers and people approaching me saying they wanted me to write a book for health professionals about prostate cancer. So I went to the groups of consumers that I work with and said to them, well, what could I do that would make the most difference on the ground for you? Should I write a book for health professionals or should I write a book for you? And they said, no, write a book for us, Suzanne. So that conversation happened last year. And so I sat down and I wrote the book. I worked with consumers and health professionals in the field as, as I went through it to make sure it was appropriate and well-targeted, and now we have the outcome of that. Fantastic. 
Um, I'd like to take a brief walkway through the book, maybe chapter by chapter. Sure. Um, and in chapter two, you address the question, why me? So based on your experience, can you enlarge upon your thoughts around the why me question, which uh, so many people, not only with prostate cancer, but of course with uh, cancer in general, ask. So what are the keys and what are the more subtle issues that men have to cope with when they're diagnosed with prostate cancer? And can you address the why me question? Oh, sure. Well, if we start with why me, for most people a diagnosis of cancer is pretty shocking. Uh, we all think or like to think as if we're going to live forever and nothing really bad will happen to us so long as we lead a reasonably good life, the just world hypothesis. And yes. that helps us get by and feel safe in the world. So when you know, a terribly difficult thing, a bad thing, like a cancer diagnosis happens to us, people can feel it's very unjust and unfair and can just be shocked with the reality of this and it doesn't matter whether you're a woman with breast cancer or a man with prostate cancer you can have those feelings and they're very common. I think the thing that's complicated for men is that men are socialised to feel like they've got to be the strong ones, they've got to look after things and part of being masculine is about being strong and physically well and so cancer which is an assault to the body and knocks you around can really get to the core of men's feelings of masculinity and their sense of self and I think that's a dimension that we don't understand particularly well and we're really working through at the moment to understand because masculinity is not just about sex and about being able to have sex it's also about feeling strong and vital and uh, powerful mm. in the world and so these are the things I think that men really struggle struggle with and they're not in general, and I'm going to use stereotypes here, and I know that not all men are like this, but that men aren't really socialised to express feelings or talk a lot about what's happening to them. So having those difficult emotions can be really difficult for them to cope with, particularly if they haven't experienced something like this before and they may not really know what to do about the way they feel. And then, of course, that has implications for their partner who is trying to support them and having their own worries and woes at the same time. Mm. So uh, more subtle issues with men, um, apart from what you said? Do you think there are any other kind of deeper or more subtle issues around the issues of prostate cancer? Well, the deeper issues are, of course, that it affects sexuality, and it's common for treatments for prostate cancer to affect men's erectile function so they can have difficulties with sex. But... I guess at this point in time, my understanding of this is constantly evolving the more I talk to men and the more research I do, but mm -hmm. I think probably one of the core issues is masculinity and how it's affected by that. And indeed, I've got research emerging now that indeed shows that mas masculine self-esteem predicts not only the distress of the man over time, but also his partner. So it's quite a powerful thing. Men are very often very problem-focused and task-oriented in how they cope with things, and so being, having to give control of certain things over to a healthcare team can be very difficult as well. So it's managing that sense of autonomy and being in control of your life with what you have to do to get through your cancer treatment. Uh-huh. So I guess if we looked at two specific groups here, if we look at people in an early diagnosis of prostate cancer, you know, a man who's listening to the show today, hasn't known much about it, last week he got his diagnosis, compared with people that have had prostate cancer, been around the traps for a long time with it, um, do you work specifically with those two groups of people and you, can you talk about the difference in the approach to those two groups? 
Well, I work with men at all stages of their cancer journey, of their prostate cancer journey, in all stages of illness. And uh, so my approach in terms of man- help suggesting ways that people can manage this from a psychological point of view is pretty consistent, really. It's about understanding what treatment you're going through, understanding what you've got ahead of you, learning about strategies you can employ yourself to manage those side effects of treatment, knowing how to get the best out of your healthcare team and communicate them to do that, understanding that your partner, if you have one, can be a great source of support and how to negotiate that as you go through. Men who have disease, prostate cancer, that has advanced out of their prostate have particular worries, of course, that are different. If your cancer has advanced, perhaps to other parts of your body or perhaps your treatment's not working the way you were hoping it is, that has a great psychological burden that comes with it and it's quite stressful. And so I think more recently what we're doing is focusing on mindfulness techniques, so that's based in the Buddhist tradition, to um, help people to uh, feel more comfortable with the situation they're in and have less of a response to those worrying thoughts that may be quite rational given the situation that they're in and approach some sense of equanimity about their situation. Mm -hmm. So that really means dealing with fear and also um, addressing post-traumatic stress disorder early in the piece. Could you talk about those two aspects and and how mindfulness or other techniques might influence that? Mm, Sure. Um, The first thing to say is that studies pretty consistently show men with prostate cancer to not typically report high levels of psychological distress. We don't know whether that's because they're just not telling us or because they express distress differently. Uh And indeed, I know that I've done work with men where they've, on a a measurement scale, they look like they're not distressed at all, but I know that they are because they're telling me that they've got an upset stomach and they're not sleeping and they're feeling jumpy. So there can be different ways that people express distress. The strategies are really the same, I guess, unless you're in a really extremely distressed state, which is to understand why this is happening, to work on stress management strategies and flexible coping. So going into a situation, understanding that you might need to try different approaches to solve that problem and being prepared to find out about ways to do that and let other people help you. However, if someone finds that they really have been feeling very, very distressed for a long time and it doesn't seem to be abating, they really need to think about talking to their doctor about that. There's no medals for bravery in this business and if it's really gotten on top of you and you're finding that your sleep's constantly disturbed, having difficulty concentrating, uh, perhaps you're starting to feel a bit hopeless or helpless about the world, then it really is time to talk to your doctor and consider whether at least for a period of time you will need some additional help to help you get over that. Again, that goes back to being in touch with how you're feeling and being prepared to seek assistance. But the majority of people, with some solid advice, and I hope with the help of the book that I've written, will be able to manage that themselves and uh, and feel a sense of... And that's why we've got personal stories in the book. They can read that and feel a sense of, well, it's pretty normal to feel distressed about this. I'm, I'm not 
abnormal in that way and then look at strategies other people have used to get through the experience. Mm. I certainly found that by looking at the book. Um, it was like the book was talking to me and I think that's always a really good criteria uh, for a book that's actually going to work for people yeah. as a guide because people are... You know, they're not in a space to look at all the technicals. No, and it's really nice to hear you say that because I wrote it at my kitchen table on Saturday mornings <laughs> where I sat there and as I was typing away on my computer, I tried to write it in the voice that I use when I run workshops and I talk to people and I try and explain things. So I, so I speak in the book with that same voice and I've worked really hard to keep away from jargon. No one's interested in it. It's not helpful in my view. Mm -hmm. and just And also to stick to strategies that I think there's a chance people might actually do. A lot of books ask people to do complicated things that they're just not going to try really. So this is a pretty pragmatic, down-to-earth book based in experience. Good to hear that, and it certainly came through. The first book that I ever wrote was Women of Silence. It was about emotional recovery of breast cancer. <laughs> and I wrote that in a shed where I lived for about four years. It was supposed to be six months uh, while we were building our home and all these babies were arriving and uh, yeah, bringing up children in that kind of a space mm. and writing a book. And, and I tried to do that from that same place. So I always recognise that when somebody uh, writes a book. Of, uh, of such, I think, calibre. So we'll be back uh, shortly with Navigating the Cancer Maze. We're going to take a short break. Hi, we're back with Navigating the Cancer Maze and I'm your host, Grace Gawler, and we're speaking today with Professor Suzanne Chambers and we're talking about prostate cancer, um, a lot about the emotional and the recovery aspects of prostate cancer. And I'm going to um, ask um, Professor Chambers now about uh, any advice you might have for people listening to the show today, for instance, someone who's just been diagnosed with prostate cancer, could you give us a checklist? Mm, sure. Well, the first thing I would say is um, understand that this is a stressful time and you may experience feelings you haven't felt before and that that is normal and you're not alone. Prostate cancer is a very common cancer in the developed world, in the Western world, and becoming more common, in fact, in uh, the third world. So you're not alone and this is tough. So first thing is give yourself a break and don't be tough on yourself would be my first lesson. Good. The second one would be take your time. There is rarely a need to make a mad dash hurry towards decisions in prostate cancer. Check with your doctor, of course, but it, there's usually time to really consider your options. And then I think take the time to talk to a couple of different doctors from different disciplines about the different ways that your prostate cancer could be treated. I certainly never get into giving medical advice myself, but what I do know is that it's important to feel like you've asked all the questions, got the answers and you understand them and then you make the best decision that you can and, and do that in a way that, in a pace that is comfortable for you. Often people find that once they've made a decision they feel greatly relieved and they're on to the next step and then their distress starts to build up a bit more as they move towards the time of treatment. So that's pretty normal and what you can do to help yourself is to read, find out information about what you can expect and start preparing. You want yourself in the best shape possible before you go through treatment and this can mean doing things like getting your weight under control, if you're smoking, give up smoking, cut down on the alcohol if you, if you drink a fair bit, uh, things to make yourself physically well, good nutrition, all those sorts of things, and then find out about what are the likely treatment side effects you might experience and how you're going to manage those. So, for example, 
Problems with urinary incontinence or leaking urine is not uncommon after surgery, but you can do pelvic floor exercises, and there's an excellent book around about that by Peter Dornan that you can find on Amazon, I'm sure, and read that. So What's the title? Do you remember oh, I think it's called... Um, something like you can conquer incontinence and Peter Dornan who wrote it has had prostate cancer he's a physiotherapist he's a great mate of mine so he'd be great cross I can't remember the exact name of his book but okay. um, it's an excellent book and I know it's easily accessible so you know you can read up on all the things that you can do start exercising of course make your doctor check yourself out first but exercise is really good for men with prostate cancer all those normal things that we know about and we know we should do but we often don't do mm. with regards to how you're feeling I guess understand that this is a stressful experience and there are strategies that you can apply to help yourself. So very simple stress management techniques that you can use. Just sometimes just taking time to make sure you do some nice, pleasant activities every day. If you're in a relationship, it's important to be able to talk to your partner about how you're going to get through this together because if you think of times of stress, the times when misunderstandings can most easily happen. So one of your best weapons is to go through this if you're in a relationship with your partner and you're a team in this together and you work together as a team. They're probably my main quick tips because um, mm. I don't have the book. I wrote the book, but it's not encyclopedic <laughs> in my memory now. They sound like uh, pretty good and pretty basic kind of tips, but they're what people need to hear, I think, at a time like this. Yeah. Because people often get caught up in the hurly-burly of, particularly now, looking for diets and alternative medicine, and it gets really stressy. And, you know, I find with a lot of my clients, they get stressed trying to de-stress because they're trying to do so much towards their recovery. So your approach here is kind of more laid-back, saying just take time, smell the roses, you know? Mm, I think people are really tough on themselves. Yeah. And I think men are very tough on themselves, I must say. And... Uh, you know, not to judge their own reactions, to be their own best friend be another way to put it and really look after themselves the way they would look after a best friend if they were going through this experience. Yeah, I think that's really nice advice. Um, you focused in this book on the issues the partners faced, and we've mentioned this just a couple of times as we've been talking, when a loved one's diagnosed with prostate cancer. Can you share some stories around this theme from people that have particularly touched you, um, in, you sure. know, with their relationship stories, etc.? Yeah. Over to you. I guess, I, you know, I'll just talk in general terms about that. What often happens in a relationship is that the partner feels they have to take on the role of the carer and protector of the person with cancer. With when your partner's a male, that can be difficult to do because they think they're the carer and the protector. So that mm. can be an immediate issue. And often the partner will suck up their negative vibes till they're, you know, and try and cushion the person and really suck it all up till they're just almost bursting. Um, so and and often partners think they don't they don't deserve support and help. They think the support goes to the person with prostate cancer or with cancer and I don't count. So the first thing I would say to the partner is that you do count. You count just as much as the person with cancer and if you're not prepared to make yourself count on your own behalf, make yourself count because you'll be a better supporter if you're not at the end of your tether. So that means the partner also needs to take some time out for themselves and to get support from themselves and look after their own psychological well-being also and they need to feel they have permission to do that. Yeah, they often feel so guilty. Yeah, they do. And, and in this, there's some stories in the book that uh, you know someone could read easily by going through it, but just talks. there's one particular one where one of the ladies says, 
you know, I didn't want to be in charge of everything, but I didn't want to be locked out either. So it's sort of like trying to be an equal partner where they work together in this and and they share the burden together is really important. Uh, So that's... That's my best advice. I mean, it's quick advice, but, uh, you know, again, if they read the book, I go into it in a bit more detail. Yeah, I must say the book's not heavy reading. Um, no. And uh, it's quite small, so it's it's not daunting. And that's a real plus with it too. Mm. Um, you have a chapter in there on decision-making, um, how, de- how you make decisions. And uh, the implication is that you've got to live with the decisions that you make. That's <laughs> so right, you do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is pretty natural. But again, when it applies to this, it's a pretty big area. So can you enlarge upon this and, and again, mm. perhaps illustrate it with some of your experience sure. or story around decision-making? The thing that's hard in prostate cancer in particular is that there are a number of quite different treatments you can have and they all have different side effect profiles. So if you have radiation therapy, certain things will happen. If you have surgery, quite different things will happen, although the long-term outcomes seem to be much the same from the research that's been done. And that can be quite a surprise for people who think, well, if I'm diagnosed with cancer, there'll be one way to treat this. I'll walk in, my doctor will, of course, tell me what to do, and I'll just go do it. Where instead, what they can get is up to five different options, and then all the information, which can be confusing to consider the pros and cons of each option, mm. and then sent away to work it out as if they've got a computer in their head. And of course, we don't make decisions like that at all. I often say in groups I run, you know, we... we act like when we're going to make a health decision we'd understand every pro and every con and we'd weigh it all up to make a decision but we never make decisions by and large like that in life some people do but most don't if you think Mm. about the last car you bought did you in detail research every different type of car weigh up the pros and cons and then pick the best one in australia you're more likely to have bought the car your father drove or you know the car of someone that you admire same with a washing machine. I buy washing machines that my mother bought. I have no idea whether it's a good one or not, but I think it was good enough for mum, it's good enough for me. And that's shortcut decision-making that we use all mm. the time. Well, we actually use those decision-making approaches often in health as well. So in my experience, I've had men say to me, well, I decided to have surgery because my auntie had breast cancer and she had surgery and, that, and she was cured. Now, it's great that she was cured, but the treatment for breast cancer has nothing to do with the treatment for prostate cancer. So that's an example of where someone's made a shortcut decision and they haven't really considered in detail the pros and cons of the different approaches. So my advice to men is ultimately you may use a shortcut approach to make your decision, but before you do that, it's really important to be informed about what your choices are and your doctor can help you do that get your second opinions if you want second opinions Mm -hmm. and then if you understand the different choices and the pros and cons of each then you can sit down after that and have a think about well what matters most to me what's the thing that I care most about in making my decision and you can let that guide you to make a choice of treatment whatever choice you make you never know really what the outcome is going to be you get the best doctor you can and you hope for the best but at least if you've become well informed before that you make the decision you'll know that you made the best decision you could at the time and then you move forward with your life after that that's kind of the gist of what I talk about in Mm -hmm. that chapter and suggest some strategies like working out what your options are write pros and cons sheet out talk that pros and cons sheet out with your doctor or with, and with your partner so that you can get clear about what you want to do and then you'll be more confident, hopefully, about your decision. Mm, good answer. 
I think uh, with all changes comes uh, consequences, with all choices comes consequences. And uh, if you make a conscious choice, and I found this from myself, I've had 21 surgeries now and uh, 10 feet of colon missing, which people who are listening to this show (laughs) know my story. And I know there were many junctions in the road where I had to make a conscious choice. And some of those were really tough choices. But I thought, well, whatever the outcome, I've actually made this choice with all the best knowledge that I have and with no regrets afterwards if it goes belly up and it doesn't work, at least I've done it. So I really hear that from, from <laughs> a very personal point, point yeah. of view and it's it's really, really good advice. So um, I'm interested to know about uh, the sort of demographic of people that you see, young people and old people. Mm-hmm. Um, and does the advice tend to differ or be easier in those different uh, age demographics? Sure. Well, prostate cancer is more common as you age. So you don't often... I mean, I've certainly met men younger than 50 with prostate cancer and done work with them, but they're by and large not younger than 50, they're over 50. I think what makes a difference, it's not so much your chronological age, it's what's happening in your life. So if you're a man who's 55 with children of primary school age, you know, children who are maybe 8 or 9, you're facing the same challenge as a man who's 63 who's got children who are 8 or 9 because it's about looking after a family, the financial issues that go with that, wanting to see your children grow up. So I think with all cancers, it's more about life stage and what that brings to you rather than your actual age. Okay. We need to take a break now on Navigating the Cancer Maze and we'll be back shortly. Don't go away. We're back on Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host, Grace Gawler, and today we're speaking with Professor Suzanne Chambers, who's written a fantastic book called Facing the Tiger, A Guide for Men with Prostate Cancer and the People Who Love Them. And we'll tell you shortly where you can get hold of a copy of that book. Um, We're going to launch in in this segment to the great big one about sexuality and relationships because many times with a cancer diagnosis, not only prostate cancer but many different kinds of um, cancer and in fact many surgeries um, can really change the landscape of a relationship and it's involved with changes in body image, your sexuality, your identity, who you are, who you are as yourself and who you are as you're relating to other people. So I'd like to uh, get some wisdom from from your years of experience in working in this area as a psychologist and uh, could you share with us some tips that could really help people to navigate this very difficult landscape once everything's changed? It's an incredibly complicated area. The thing about prostate cancer is that for most men it will have an impact on their sexual function, their ability to get an erection. And for most men, just the ability to get an erection is an incredibly important part of who they are. And so I've had many men say to me that it's irrelevant even whether they're in a sexual relationship. The ability to get an erection makes them feel like a man. And that when they can't get an erection, it affects not just the way they feel about themselves, but the way they interact with women, even on a reasonably superficial level, because they just don't feel like the man that they were. Mm -hmm. So it's an incredible loss a man if that happens to him and I think that can be hard sometimes for women to understand you know because we just I mean let's face it we're just so different we don't have a penis so we don't know (laughs) what that's like yeah and I've, I've spent years learning about this and really getting a lot of empathy for the situation men find themselves in when this occurs to them 
and often women will say, well, I've told him a million times that I don't mind if we can't have sex and I don't mind if he can't get an erection, but it's, does, that doesn't, it kind of helps in a way, I guess, but that doesn't stop the loss that that means for that man. And so I think that's just part of acknowledging and understanding that this is a big deal. What often happens too with couples is that because their first thoughts are about survival and wanting to beat the cancer and not die of the cancer, they push thoughts of sex to the, to the back of their minds and their attention and don't worry about that till quite a bit down the track. And that's not necessarily a good thing. There's emerging research suggesting that it's pretty important for uh, men who want to have a sexual life that involves you know, getting an erection sufficient for sexual intercourse to be doing things to stimulate the penis, get the blood flow going and doing all those things pretty much from the get-go. So if you've put it behind you and you're not going to leave it for 12 months, which is not uncommon, I might add, you're not doing yourself a lot of favours um, in terms of promoting the chances that you'll get good erectile function down the track. So what's important for couples is that the minute there's a diagnosis, they find out what the implications are and they get early treatment for that because it's not in the men's heads, it's a medical reason why this occurs, it's because of the treatment and so medical treatments are required and that has to come from their doctor. But in addition to that, what couples can do is make sure that they keep intimacy going. Sometimes men will tell me that they've stopped hugging or touching or being close to their wives because they think, well, what's the point? I can't have sex anyway. And then she feels unloved, rejected and unattractive. And these are all the things that can happen in relationships when people are trying to protect each other. They don't talk. They mind read each other and think they know what's going on in the other person's head without checking it out with each other. So for men, often a way of getting in promoting intimacy on a real emotional level is actually having sexual intercourse whereas for a woman it can be quite different so you can see that having a diagnosis of prostate cancer can lead to some conversations that couples have perhaps never had to have before mm. because things have just gone a certain way and they've both been pretty happy with it but you can't take it for granted once you've had a diagnosis of prostate cancer so couples need to share with each other how they're thinking and feeling and again cope together as a team in making sure that they maintain intimacy, keep close with each other and work out what their goals are for sex, what they want to happen with sex and then doing what's required to make that happen for them. Mm, that can be, a, a, as you say, a whole new area for people and pretty challenging when you're also dealing with the issue of the diagnosis and well, exactly. all the other stuff that's going on in life. But yeah, I take a what you're saying very seriously from what I have seen in my practice too. Uh, do you think the use of a sex therapist for uh, some of these um, couples is a useful addition? Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's a place for sex therapists. There are some... What happens in Australia a lot, and I'm not sure in the US, is that we have... Often there are some particular general practitioners who start to specialise in sex. And my experience of working with these chaps is that they... Um, and women, of course is that they don't just treat the physical side of things, they understand it's about communication and goal setting together and all mm. those things as well. The person needs to get the sort of help that they're comfortable with. So I think as a first stop, you need to find out from your doctor what's going to happen and how can it be treated. 
and then if you and your couple, you, sorry, if the couple, you and your partner think that you'd like to talk to a sex therapist and get some ideas about ways you can, um, other different ways to have sex, if penetrative sex isn't going to be possible anymore and you want some ideas about different things that you can do together, then go see a sex therapist or get some good books and re read up. I'm very open-minded about where you can get advice about sex. And, uh, and don't just give up, I guess, is my advice. I've worked with couples where they worked hard at it for a while and then they let it, let it go and then they've talked to me and they've had another go and then felt really good about being able to revive their sex life again after they let it go for a while. Because it really does, it really can build a sense of, of warmth and intimacy that adds a dimension to your life. But on the other hand, there's no rule that says you have to have sex. And there are couples who have said to me, look, Suzanne, we were, hadn't been doing it for years anyway and we're really close and intimate anyway and we're really not worried about it. And fair enough, if that's what they're comfortable with. It's really about, I think what, what I'm about is couples feeling comfortable and happy with their relationship the way it is and being individual and just making sure that what they want is happening, not what other people think they should be doing. Thank you. Great answer. Um, we talked a little bit before in the break about uh, a lovely story of intimacy in a different way. Um, with, uh, could you share that story about the man uh, and the dog, please? Yeah, there's lots of lovely stories. How I got the stories in my book, some of them the chaps written that wrote themselves, but most of them I interviewed the man and, and, and the partners, and there's, and there's a son in there as well and uh, got them to tell me their story and then it's just put it into the book. But there's a lovely story which a number of people have commented on, on, on one of the fellows who was feeling really miserable and upset and lonely and his final decision was he just came out with to his partner, you've got work, I need a dog. <laughs> he got a dog, it really made a difference. And I'm, I guess what I love about that story is that sometimes it can be a simple change to your life and it doesn't even have to be a psychologist. It could be a puppy that loves you that follows you around. There are quite a few nice stories in that book where people talk really from the heart about their experience and the things that worked for them. Yeah, I talk about the just one thing principle. Um, from If you've ever seen the movie City Slickers with no, uh, Billy Crystal, there's a priceless little scene in there. And so anyone who's listening today, I'm sure, will remember that movie. But it's basically he, Billy Crystal is this cowboy and he's out there and there's this old crusty cowboy and... You know, he says, oh, well, I want you to tell me what the secret of life is to this old cowboy, you see. And he just holds up his finger and he said, what's that? And he says, just one thing. And he said, what's the one thing? And he said, that's what your life's all about, finding out. <laughs> yeah. And that simple thing of just the one, just the dog. And mm. I've, I've just found this so often that people can just put one thing into their life like this and it kind of changes the dynamic. Mm. It's, it's simple and it's common sense that you're talking about. Mm. And mm. It's interesting that common sense can sound quite exciting. <laughs> <laughs> um, any other tips for people in relationship uh, just before we leave that particular okay. area that you can think of? Because well, it is such a great big one. Yeah, it's a big one. It's, it's really about being respectful of each other's differences trying not to mind read each other, sharing information with each other. Don't talk about cancer all the time. It can be exhausting. So that is a really good point. Yeah, making, but you do have to talk about it some of the time. So making and coming to a, an agreement between you two, how you're going to cope with it. How are you going to manage this situation? And that might mean saying, we're only going to talk about it when we're going to go out for coffee on Friday mornings and that's when we're going to talk about it, other than, of course, if some emergent issue comes up. But um, and 
maintaining normal life, so seeing your friends, going out to the pictures, doing the things that you normally do that make life fun. It can be very easy in the turmoil of cancer to stop doing the normal things that bring colour and texture to our lives and then you can end up just feeling really flat and downhearted. So if that's happened, notice that and bring in some concrete strategies to start doing the things that you really enjoy and that bring pleasure to your life. Okay, well let's uh, dive into the area of stress reduction and mindfulness Mm. training Mm. um, and perhaps resilience training as well. Um, I I didn't read that in the book but I presume that that's a a part of the whole dynamic and that Buddhist approach you were talking about. Um, We'll come back after the break if we run out of time and talk about this more. So um, what do you see as the role of um, these stress reduction techniques? You might be talking to somebody who's kind of uh, been one of the boys all his life and suddenly you're talking about a Buddhist technique, you know. Uh, How how do you work with that? Yeah, well, I've been taught a lot by the men I've worked with about what they will and won't do. And so what I always say is it's a smorgasbord of things. For some men, um, and women too, the most relaxing thing might be watering the garden, going for a bicycle ride, going for a long bushwalk. What's probably important is to know those are the things that help you cope with stress and if you've dropped those things off, make yourself bring them back. So first of all, think about what do I normally do to cope with stress and what works for me and if you stopped doing those things, start making, start trying to schedule those back into your life and making yourself do them. But there are other things that you can learn and I talk in the book about this being like a toolbox. You wouldn't use one tool to fix everything in your car so you need different tools for different problems and if the tools you've got don't seem to be doing the job this time you might need another tool and that's where things like learning about um, just sometimes simple deep breathing relaxation techniques or um, meditation can be quite useful. Okay we're going to come back after the break and dive into that a little further. Uh, We're navigating the cancer maze and it's the prostate cancer maze today and I'm speaking with Professor Suzanne Chambers and we'll be back shortly. We're back with navigating the cancer maze and we're talking about mindfulness and stress reduction therapies with Professor Suzanne Chambers who's the author of Facing the Tiger, a guide for men with prostate cancer and importantly the people who love them. Welcome back and let's uh, dive into this uh, area of uh, stress reduction a little more. So before the break, we were talking about uh, your approach to keeping it simple for mm. men. Mm. And uh, I know men have said to me, I'm not going to wear orange and be like a pretzel uh, when you talk about meditation or stress reduction. So can you enlarge a little bit more about this and, and how you would approach this in a session with, with men? Sure. Well, um, there are lots of different ways to do stress reduction or stress management and lots of different strategies that you can teach people and it depends upon the problem that you're trying to solve. So obviously for some people time management is a good thing for them to learn and get better at. Um, the things I particularly draw attention to in the book are some fairly easy approaches to relaxation type exercises that have the effect of physiologically calming your body down and also trying to still the mind. So what happens in cancer is that the threat of the cancer puts you into a fight-or-flight response by and large. So people can suddenly find that their head is full of worrisome thoughts and they are feeling quite agitated, stressed, maybe an upset tummy or breathing not so well. A whole lot of different physiological changes can happen as well or just feeling on the edge all the time. And what stress management techniques can do is take that down a step. 
So it's really about trying to get back in control of what is a basically a physiological response. You're not imagining it or mm-hmm. dreaming it up because your body doesn't know what's happening to it, but it knows it's under threat and it's reacting as if there's a tiger coming at you and it's getting you ready to fight it or to flee from it. And of course, in the face of a cancer diagnosis, there's no one to fight and there's nowhere to flee by and large, which is the dilemma that you're in. Now, I have had many men over the years say sort of the same thing about not going to dress up in orange and twist like a pretzel. So what I did in the book was put things in there that I've actually reasonably been able to get men to do. And very simple things can make a big difference. There's some slow breathing exercises in the book which is just about controlling your breathing and stilling your mind that can really make a difference. There are more complicated things that you can do like progressive relaxation as a whole heap of these and there are many books around that explain how these how to do these and that have cds and things you can listen to so i reference some of those in the back of the book and i'm not trying to reproduce those the other thing that is coming more to the fore in the cancer area but has been around for quite some time is this idea of mindfulness and what mindfulness is it's based in the buddhist tradition but it's trying to get you to still the mind and sit in the present moment Because often when we're stressed and worried, what we're doing is imagining something down the track that may or may not happen, and we're reacting to it as if it is happening right now, and that is the root of the problem. Mm -hmm. So it's the simple mindfulness strategy I put in the book is just about learning to notice what's around you in your environment and direct your attention to what's around you in your environment, and by doing that, it takes you away from the thoughts that are worrying you the thoughts will keep bursting back in often and that's okay you don't give yourself a hard time about it you just notice those thoughts are aware of them and then you bring your mind back to the present moment and to what's around you Uh, this there's been a lot written on this book by on on this issue by very famous person Kabat-Zinn and I refer to Kabat-Zinn's book in in my book and another book called Happy for No Good Reason that I personally really liked that it's talking about these types of strategies and my advice is just keep an open mind about it it might not be for you and that's okay it doesn't matter but if you find some of these techniques help you and you can become skilled in them they can really be a great extra tool in your toolbox to help you when you're feeling like things are getting a bit on top of you or when things get a bit tougher Mm, I guess it's all a matter of recognising that the stress is a problem for you. Absolutely. And one of the things I do talk about in the book for men and their partners as well is being aware of moments when you might be feeling more distressed or stressed and trying to notice what's going on in your mind at the time and challenging those thoughts and trying to challenge unhelpful or irrational worries that are in your head or simply trying to bring yourself back to the present moment more so that those thoughts have less ability to harm you. In the end, they're just thoughts. Mm, Sounds good. (laughs) I wanted to talk about uh, prostate cancer in particular in the workplace. In my own practice, I've had a lot of men with prostate cancer who've said, I can't tell the boss, I can't share this with my mates, I've got this problem. And uh, if they work in the mines, for instance, Mm. 
and they come back so they fly in, fly out, uh, which is a lot of happening here in Australia at the moment, that this is another kind of a stress that gets created because the cocoon of silence is is bound by um, you know their work and they need their work for their income and they need their work as a sense of identity and masculinity too. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I don't have any easy answers for that. In an ideal world, we'd like to think that every workplace would be supportive of a person with cancer and indeed some workplaces are really supportive of people with cancer and, and do the right thing. Some workplaces are not supportive of people with cancer and I've certainly had men tell me that they are absolutely certain that their diagnosis of cancer had an impact on their um, aspirations for promotion and other things. So what's my advice? I mean, you know, you, people know their own workplace. Make sure you know what your, what your, um, what your rights are in the workplace and what help you're, you should get. Uh, if you've got a supportive boss or supportive people around you, it's useful to have them as part of your team. But there's no recipe that I can give for this because it really is based on an individual circumstance. If you feel that in your workplace it's not going to be helpful for you to talk about your cancer, make sure there's other people in your life that you can talk about your cancer to so that you're yeah. not coping with it on your own. Yeah, that's a really important solution because I see the uh, the non-talking is a really big stress in that cocoon of silence. Look, it, it is, and there's good evidence. There's this thing called social constraints, which is a fancy-schmancy psychological word for do you feel you can talk to other people about your cancer? And we know that depression is more likely if people don't feel like they can talk to anybody. Yeah. Feeling like you can talk to someone doesn't mean you're doing it all the time, but it means you know you can. Yeah, really important. Could you give us, um, as we're coming towards the end of the program, we always love to leave people with resources on this show. So where can they get hold of your book and uh, what are the resources? And can you tell us whether there's an e-book or will it will be available sure. soon? So at the moment, the book is available through the web store of Australian Academic Press. So the site for that is www.australianacademicpress.com.au. AU. But if you do a search on Facing the Tiger and My Name, you should on Google, you should be able to find it pretty quickly. Okay. Um, the book is also available, I believe, through the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia, and that's where the royalty is going, so I think they're selling the book as well. We are going to have an e-book, and we are planning to move towards an American version as well, but we don't have that, I don't believe, quite yet. Okay. So probably the American prostate and the Australian prostate are fairly similar. <laughs> I think we've just got to change George to Chuck. <laughs> On that note, that's a very good note to uh, conclude today. I'd like to uh, thank you very much for being a part of Navigating the Cancer Maze today. I think the book is really helpful and um, I hope listeners really take advantage of that. So thank you, Professor Suzanne Chambers. Thank you, Grace. And we'll be back next week on Navigating the Cancer Maze. Remember, you can also look up our website and our prostate cancer website too, which is prostatemates.com. We'll see you next week.